0: Um, Our second Bible reading this evening is taken from uh, the 14th chapter of John and reading from the first verse down to the 14th verse and it can be found on uh, 1,129 of the few Bibles or up on the screen behind me. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house, a many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Well, good
1: evening, friends. Uh, my name's John. I'm the assistant minister at this church. It's a delight to have all of you. If you're here for the first time, I would love to personally meet you afterwards. So please do come and see me, or I'll hunt you down and say hello. Uh, We are doing a series, a different series, a topical series, our Dear God series, where we're asking big questions to God. Dear God, how do we know you exist? Why should I believe in the Bible? And tonight we're looking at another one. Now, there is an outline on the way in. This uh, outline will be particularly helpful tonight, because it's quite a detailed uh, talk and detailed outline, so grab one of those if you don't have it. Uh, about three quarters of the year we would as a church work through books of the Bible chapter by chapter but this series we're doing a topical series we're thinking about these big questions but after this series we'll go back to a book of the Bible working chapter by chapter but um, as I get a bit ready why don't we turn around greet each other say hello and then I'll call you back in a short moment and we'll have a look at this topic grab an outline as well while while you wait Okay, well, let me get your attention. We'll have a look at this topic. (laughs) Well, the big question for tonight is, Dear God, why do you get to tell me what to do? Dear God, why don't you just mind your own business and leave me alone? I wonder whether you've thought about that question, whether you've asked that question or even thought it. I mean, this is my life, isn't it? You'll say the same thing. That's your life. Your life's your life. My life's mine. I make my own choices. I'm a free agent. I'm my own man. You don't get to tell me what I can or can't do. I mean, you don't run my life, God, and you can't tell me what I can or can't believe. I mean, I want to believe whatever I want. That's how we normally talk, don't we? I can believe in one God or many gods or no gods at all. That's my choice, God. And so, dear God, why do you get to tell me what to do? It's a question we all ask, a question a lot of people ask. Now, you can understand why people do ask these type of questions, right? No one likes to be told what to do. I don't like to be told what to do. This week I got a text from someone who's very close to me telling me what to do. I did not like it, was my wife. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like to be told what to do. I'm sure it's the same for you. And we learn from a young age that we don't like being told what to do. Go to sleep. No. Have your dinner. No. Have your veggies. No. Do your homework. No. Practice piano. No. Clean a toilet. No. mean, we all learn that, right? It's not just my household, right? It's yours too, I'm sure. Well, no one likes to be told what to do. And so, why any different when it comes to God? Why do you, God, get to tell me what to do and what to believe? And more than that, Christianity is only one of the many religions in the world. Do you know how many religions there are in the world? Estimates have it at about 4,200 religions. And so if there are so many thousands of religions in the world, if there are so many, so many ways to live, so many ways to God, then why can any one God or religion or faith determine this is how you are to live? Determine this is what you are to believe? How's that possible? And so when you hear anyone claim such a thing, when you hear Christians make such a claim, isn't that then arrogance? These Christians are just bigoted, narrow-minded, intolerant, I mean, the the comments we hear is, isn't everyone's opinion valid? I mean, aren't all religions the same anyway? That's what we hear, don't we? And so our question for tonight, Dear God, why do you get to tell me what to do? And so to explore this question, we'll explore it in three parts. Firstly, why we don't like God telling us what to do. Secondly, we'll look at, what then if we decide what we are to do? We get to decide, what will that lead to? And the third part will be why God gets to tell us what to do. And so firstly, why we don't like God telling us what to do. There are, there are many reasons why that might be so, but the two big ones are these. We don't like God telling us what to do because it impinges on my freedom This is my life, my freedom. That's the first one. The second one is, if someone tells us what to do, it's just intolerant. It's not politically correct. And so let's consider these two big reasons for why we don't like God telling us what to do. Firstly, one of the most important human rights that blood has been spilt over, that wars have been fought over, that has been enshrined in the constitutions of all Western nations that is inscribed on the charter of the United Nations that we sing about in our Australian national anthem is freedom. You know that, right? It is freedom. What's one of the lines in our, in our anthem? You should know this. Waltzing Matilda is not our anthem. It is Advanced Australia Fair. so you I know it. What's the first line? Australians all let us rejoice for we are young and free. There you go. You see we're on about freedom and so when someone else tells us how we are to live it impinges on our freedom and so we fight for freedom, we uphold freedom we would even kill for freedom and so when God tries to tell me what to do it impinges on my freedom. This is my life, my freedom to create my own purpose and meaning my freedom to do as I please my freedom to decide what is right and wrong for me. You say we don't like that idea. And so, that's the first big problem, the first big reason for why we don't like God telling us what to do. So the second one is this. The second big reason is because it's just intolerant. It's narrow-minded. It's arrogant. It's exclusive. I mean, aren't there over 4,200 religions in the world? How can anyone claim to have the monopoly on the truth? And more than that. Aren't all religions just the same anyway? You've heard that before? Don't they all get to the same God or the thousands of religions? Aren't they just different paths up the same mountain but on the same mountain? And how about just accepting all religions as equal? Isn't that fair? And isn't God just a bit too big anyway to be confined to just the one religion? Now, have you heard those comments? Those those reasons. Now, you may have heard of this parable. It's an Indian parable of the elephant. Now, this is how people have tried to describe the various, the thousands of religions in the world. The way it works is this. This is a picture of an elephant and how people have tried to describe the various religions of the world is this way. All the religions are represented by these different blind men groping around trying to find out what the truth is and so one touches the leg of the elephant and he thinks this is the tree but then another one says no you've you, you got it wrong it's not the tree, he touches the tail and he says it's a rope but then another guy says no you're all wrong, it's not a tree, it's not a rope, he touches the tusk of the elephant and he says this is the spear this is the spear and finally one other guy says you've all got it wrong he touches the side of the elephant and he says, This is just a war. But you get the story there, don't you? You get the idea. The moral of the parable is that no one, no one at all, sees the totality of truth. No one has the absolute truth. It's a nice parable. And so no one can claim to be the only way to God. In fact, all the religions of the world you only grasp part of the truth, no one gets to see the whole elephant. And so to claim that you have the ultimate truth, the whole truth, well, that's an intolerant claim. That's an arrogant claim. That's being bigoted and narrow-minded. And that's why we don't like God telling us what to do. It impinges on my freedom and it's just intolerant. But now let's move on to the second part of this question. What if we get to decide then? Forget God. We get to decide what to do, what we can believe. Let's think about that for a moment and let's see where that leads. Now, where do you think our version of freedom or tolerance leads to? Where do you think that gets to? Well, let's think about freedom for a moment. Where does our version of freedom lead to? If freedom means I get to absolutely do whatever I want to do, no restrictions in any way not not uh, put in a straitjacket I'm able to rip free and roam free if that is my definition of freedom do you actually think that's entirely possible is it actually livable would it make sense of life if everyone got to do their own thing complete freedom unrestricted in every way is that livable does that actually make sense of society Now, in our recent census, what's the population of Australia now? About 150 or something, (laughs) those who did their census. uh, The estimate's probably about uh, 25 million people in Australia. Now, just imagine for a moment, 25 million people and imagine 25 million versions of freedom doing whatever you like in the name of freedom is that actually workable? Does it actually make sense of life? Is it livable? Now, I suspect not because I know that I would want to put boundaries on your freedom and you'll probably want to put boundaries on my freedom and we put boundaries. We put boundaries like you're free to do anything you like as long as you don't harm anyone. We even put boundaries on, on relationships. You're free to marry anyone you like, as long as it's two consenting adults in the privacy of your own home. It doesn't matter what others think. But then, why did we put that boundary? Why did we restrict that freedom? Why just two adults? Why not more? Why not three? Why not four? Why restrict that freedom? You see, we do that. I'm sure you do that, and I would do that as well. And so, when we think about freedom what we're also thinking about is morality. When we think about freedom, human freedom, we're also at the same time thinking about morality, what is right and what is wrong, what we should allow and what we should not allow. And so we want to say you're free to do all that is right and good but you're not free to do all that is evil and wrong. Otherwise, what do you end up with if everyone has complete absolute freedom? to do anything they want. What might you end up with in society? Well, you'll end up with the things that happened in the 20th century. Nazi Germany, 6 million Jews killed. Why? People with freedom doing what they want. Or under the Stalin regime, Mao's regime, Pol Pot's regime, 20, uh, 61 million people dead because of those regimes. And Why? Or well, people get to do what they want with the freedom that they have. And so when you think about that, you want to put boundaries on freedom. You're free to do what is right, but not what is wrong. But then the question becomes how do you decide? How do you decide what is right and wrong? How do you decide how much freedom we should allow? How do you draw the line? Where do you set the boundary of freedom? And so how do we do that as people? How do we decide what is moral? How do we decide what is right and wrong? You see, our version of freedom that we come up with is in fact very confusing. It's very confusing because who decides? Well, firstly, let's think about it. If it's just based on the individual, on the level of the individual, every individual gets to decide what their version of freedom is. But then what happens if my version of freedom, my version of right and wrong impinges on your freedom, impinges on what you think is right and wrong? What will happen when there are 25 million versions of freedom in Australia all competing or striving for the same thing? What happens? What can happen is conflict, fighting and at worst you have war and chaos and distrust. That is what happens if we base our moral decisions, base our freedom on the individual level. It just does not work. Too many people, it just does not work. Your version, my versus my version, who wins in the end? Well, the one who wins is the one who is loudest, or the one with the bigger gun. And so no one wins in that way. And so right and wrong can't merely be decided at the level of what individuals think. So, if it's not that level, not the individual. Well, let's move up a level. Maybe the decision of what is right and wrong is based and rests on the collective society, what the society thinks as a whole. But then if you think about human history, there's enough evidence in human history to show that collective society has got it terribly wrong over and over and over again. For example the slave trade, the black Americans not allowed to vote, women not being allowed to vote and it's not just overseas, even here in Australia. Now, many of you will be too young to remember this. I wasn't even born when this was around but the white Australian policy, remember that, heard of that? Started in 1901, it ended in 1972 and so that's only 44 years ago the white Australian policy. And what was that about? Well, what that was about was that if you were any other coloured skin other than white, you were not allowed into Australia. And so if you're Asian and you've got yellow skin, if you're black, black skin, (laughs) uh, if you're any other colour apart from white, you were not allowed into Australia. And apparently it created some confusion because with those who were not white, now, it, it was clear. Those who were yellow, those who were black, it was clear. But those who were a bit tan, they, they weren't sure what to do. And apparently, what happened was they got, particularly the uh, Europeans, Mediterraneans, they got them to strip. And if they have a tan, had a tan line, it meant that they were white. If they don't have a tan line, then they're coloured, you see. So it created a lot of confusion during that time. But then, now looking back onto that, what would you think? Well, if that's still the case, I would not be here, our family would not have migrated here and many of you would not have migrated here. But if uh, that that was the case back then, but now looking back on that, how do we think about that? What would we say about that? Of course we say now that was racist, that was wrong. But you see, to the collective society back then it was the right thing to do. And so that just shows that collective society does not get it right is not reliable as a standard of right and wrong, as a standard of moral behaviour. In fact, sometimes, often in fact, it's not the majority who gets gets it right, but it's in fact the minority that gets it right. For example, abolishing the slave trade in England. That was not a majority movement. It was a minority movement led by evangelical Christians, led by William Wilberforce. It's the minority that got it right. And so what that shows us is that right and wrong can't be decided on the level of collective society. So if it's not the individual, not the collective society, let's move it up a level. What then can we look at for the standard of how we are to live? Where to set the boundaries of how we are to live? Well, now let's look at nature, for example. Let's look at nature for the answer. What is natural? But can we really appeal to nature as the standard of morality? What do you think? It might help in some instances for the vast majority of animals, mammals at least, there's a clear divide in gender. There's the male gender, the female gender, together they procreate. But from the animal kingdom we learn nothing about love and care and faithfulness and commitment. But then when you seriously consider the natural world, lots of wacky, crazy stuff that just cannot be replicated amongst humans. For example, did you know that the male chimpanzees were in a show of territorial dominance and power, would kill and eat infant chimpanzees from a different pack, a different group? Do you know that? I mean, that's crazy stuff. Another kid that doesn't belong to your tribe, you go and kill that kid and eat it. We can't do that as as humans. Or do you know what the black widow spider does? The male and female black widow spiders, when they mate, the female one is a lot bigger than the male one. And the female one, after they mate, would eat the male one. I mean, you can't look at nature and look at that and say that's what we're meant to do as humans. That is ridiculous, right? And so we want freedom. But how do we set the boundaries? Well, the individual doesn't work. Collective society, unreliable. Nature, just wacky stuff. And so they're all insufficient. Our version of freedom just does not work. But now let's think about tolerance, What about our version of tolerance? All religions, pretty much all the same, just feeling different parts of the elephant. Now, though that idea sounds open and accepting and humble and polite to think and to say such a thing, but there are many problems with that way of thinking. The first of which is that it is in fact patronising to say such a thing. It's patronising to say and to believe such a thing. It's a bit like saying to the violin player and the viola player, oh, pretty much the same thing, and the same instrument, no difference. You'll get very angry viola players when you say that to them. Or it's a bit like saying to the Mac user and the PC user, oh, no difference, no difference at all. You get very angry PC users when you say that. Or perhaps an analogy, a better analogy that that fits what we're talking about a bit more. It's a bit like saying, oh, you Asians are all the same. You're all short and wear glasses. Or or you Australians, you're all the same. You you all smell the same. You're all hairy. (laughs) You know, when you say that, it's patronising. But in a sense, that's what we say or what people say when they say that about religion. I mean, what do you say when someone says such a comment? You call that racism, you call that prejudice. And so to say that all religions are the same, it's in a sense the religious form of prejudice, the religious form of racism. And what it really just shows, just as when you say any comments like the Asians or Australians, it just shows tremendous ignorance. Tremendous ignorance and it is patronising when anyone claims All religions are the same. You see, the Buddhists would never claim to be of the same faith as the Muslim. The Muslim would never claim to be of the same faith as the Jew. The Jew would never claim to be of the same faith as the Christian. And so, those who practice those religions, they don't think they're the same. Then how is it possible for someone who does not practise any of those religions to say, oh, you're all the same. You see how it's patronising? The, the argument just doesn't work. And so our version of tolerance is in fact patronising. The second problem is that no one is completely and absolutely tolerant. I mean, Do you really want to say that all religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing? I mean, to make such a big statement like that is to to say a huge thing because in the end, if you are consistent, you'll also have to affirm the wacky religions like the religion of Moloch. In the religion of Moloch, children were sacrificed to their gods. Do you really want to say all religions are the same? In South Africa, the murder of children for body parts, for the purposes of witchcraft, remains a common occurrence today. Do you really want to say all religions are the same? In Uganda, the ritual of killing children in the practice of traditional religion has become even a commercial enterprise. In November of 2014, six cases of child sacrifice were reported in the run-up to the Ugandan elections. Do you really want to say that all religions are basically the same? Do you really want to tolerate those type of religion as well? You see, if you probe anyone deep enough, long enough, probe anyone long enough, you'll find that we are all, we are all intolerant of something or some religions. You're never completely tolerant of everything probe anyone deep enough we are all intolerant in some way in fact the insistence that all religions are validly equal is itself a faith position it is its own religion they say that the only faith you should have is the faith that all religions are valid that, that's, uh, otherwise is intolerant but those who hold this view do the very thing they forbid others to do you see, They themselves are being intolerant of those who are different. That's the second problem. Now the third problem is that those who push for the view of tolerance and claim that no one sees the whole truth are themselves claiming to see the whole truth. Do you see that irony there? They themselves are claiming to be able to see the whole truth and that's from a position of arrogance. Now It it, it might not seem that way, but let's think about it. Those who say, none of you have the whole truth. You're all just touching different parts of the elephant, different parts, the tail, the leg, the, uh, the side of the elephant, but I can see the whole elephant. You see how that's from a position of arrogance. You don't see it. You're only touching the different parts of the elephant, but I see the whole elephant. You see, the story is told from the point of someone who is not blind who sees the whole truth, who sees the whole elephant and so the story backfires on those who use it. So if you claim that everyone only sees part of the truth, then how can you claim to be able to see the whole truth? And so such a claim is from a position of arrogance. It's patronising to say such a thing. We're all intolerant and it is arrogant. And so, where does our version of freedom and tolerance lead to? It doesn't lead to true freedom. It leads to confusion on really what is right and wrong. It doesn't lead to greater tolerance. It leads to greater intolerance. And so, if we are left to decide, it just does not work. It does not work, does not make sense of life, does not make sense of society. And so, let's return now to our first question. Dear God, why do you get to tell me what to do? Well, unlike in the elephant parable where the elephant does not speak. You see, the elephant does not say to the blind men, I'm not a tree, you fools, you blind fools. I'm not a rope, I'm not a spear, I'm not a war. I'm an elephant. The elephant in that story does not speak. But the true God of the Bible the true God of this universe is not a dumb elephant. He has spoken. He has spoken. He has revealed himself to end all speculation. He has revealed himself so that we're not left in the dark groping around like blind men. He has revealed himself so that we can fully know the truth. He has revealed himself as the one who made us, designed us, cares for us, loves us and given us a purpose. And so why, God, do you get to tell me what to do? Well, by virtue of the fact that God is our creator. He made us and as we read in Job in our first reading, he made us, we are not like God. And so he has the right to tell us what to do and believe. He owns us whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not. But now let's just say for a moment that you don't know if God exists or not and that's okay. Well, at least consider this, what God's version of freedom looks like and what God's version of tolerance looks like and when we look at God's version compared to our version, we'll find that it's a much better fit to what we see in life, a much better fit to what makes sense of life and it works. God's version of freedom, God's version of tolerance. And so contrary to what Christians are often accused of, that their lives are just so restrictive, your God just controls you, tells you what to do, it's so restrictive. You see, God's version of freedom is liberating. God's version of freedom is the best way to live and it is for our good and for our happiness. People don't see that. God's version of freedom is for our good and for our happiness. You see, if you live God's way, we are aligning ourselves to the purpose for which God made us and then you will experience true freedom. You live what you were designed for. You live the way you were made for. It's a bit like, let's say a guitar over there. A guitar is designed for a particular purpose. I might like to use that guitar as a as a broom. Or I might like to use that guitar as a weapon. Walking home in Surrey Hills, don't know what to expect. i need to carry a guitar to protect myself. Well, what do you make of that? Well, the guitar will be a lousy broom. Then the guitar will be an ineffective weapon. It will be terrible. But if I take that guitar, put it on, strap it on and play that guitar like an awesome rock star, the guitar is free. You see, the Qatar is doing what it was made for and designed for. And so, it's the same with life. You see, you are free if you do what you were made for. You are free if you live the way you were designed for, if you live God's way. And it is always better living God's way. It's always better to be honest than dishonest. It's always better to be generous than greedy. It's always better to be responsible than lazy. It's always better to be patient than impatient. It's always better to be faithful to your relationships rather than unfaithful. Always better to be gracious and merciful rather than vengeful. Always better to be kind rather than violent. Always better to be humble rather than proud. That is God's way. You see, if you actually can live that way, it is difficult to live God's way. But if you can live God's way, it makes sense of life. You'll be a better friend. You'll be a better son and a daughter and a husband and a wife and a parent, a grandparent, an employer, an employee, a citizen. If you can live that way, it makes sense of life. It makes sense and you'll be a better person for it. And more than that, you'll be a happier person as well living God's way. You see, God's way is not restrictive. It liberates you to do what is right and good and you'll be happier for it. And so that question, dear God, why do you get to tell me what to do? Well, it's because God wants us, wants me, wants you to be truly free and happy. God's version of freedom is for our good and happiness. But now what about God's version of tolerance? Well, we've already seen that all of us, if we probe deep enough, we are all intolerant in some way. But what we find in the Bible is that God is more tolerant than we are. God is more accommodating than we are. You know, though Jesus said in John 14 in our second reading, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We look at that claim and we say that's intolerant. But though it is just one way, it is one way that is open to all people. Do you see that? It is one way but it's open to all people without prejudice. It doesn't matter what race you're from, your ethnicity, your language, your social status, your income, your gender, your age, your abilities, your efforts. It's open to all it's more tolerant than we would be. God is more accommodating than we would be. And more than that, it's open to all people, even enemies. Even enemies. How much love will you show someone who hates your guts? How accommodating would you be to that person who cuts in front of you while driving, who keys your car? Would you love him? Would you? Go to the extent of sacrificing your son for that person. You see, we think we're tolerant. God is far more tolerant than we are. God is far more accommodating than we are because that was what God did. In his son Jesus, God made a way open to all people, not just some people, but all people. We get to know God, we get to go to heaven, we get salvation. And that's open to all people. And so it's not the arrogant who gets that. Now, this was what one evangelist once said in his book, Randy Newman. He said, Christianity is a voice of humility in an age of arrogance. I mean, that's strange. How is it humble to claim to be the only way? And that's because it takes humility to get salvation not arrogance. You know, We we can't come to God arrogantly and say, look at my life, God. I lived an awesome life. I did good works. Look at my charity. Look at me. I deserve a place with you in heaven. That is to come to God with arrogance. You don't get to God that way. But you get to God this way. I'm a failure. I'm a wretched man. I'm a broken person. I've hurt you. I've rejected you. But accept me now, because I come with you to you with empty hands, but a humble trust in your Son Jesus, who died for me, who redeems me, who washes me clean of all the filth that I've done, and who brings me home to you. You see, God is not intolerant at all. God is tolerating our failures, our wickedness, our evils, our sins because of what his son has done on the cross for us and so when you think about that God is far more tolerating and accommodating than we are, than we can be, than we try to be though it is only one way it is one way open to all people and so God's version of tolerance is in fact for our salvation and so our question, dear God, why do you get to tell me what to do? Well, we can sum it up this way. It is because it is for our good and happiness and it is for our salvation. That's why God gets to tell us what to do. I hope you can uh, think about that, dwell on it, ask questions, but let me pray now and then we'll have question time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us that you did not leave us in the dark, groping around, trying to find the truth, trying to find you but that you have made yourself known clearly in your son Jesus so that we know the truth, we know how to live and that we know how to be happy and get salvation. We thank you for all of this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. All right.
0: Okay, Thanks, John. So we've got time for a few questions. We had an influx of lots of questions. Unfortunately, we don't have time to do all of them. So if your question doesn't get answered, come and chat to John afterwards. I'm sure John would love to uh, discuss it in person with you. Uh, So we'll get our first question which is, does God tell me to do things other than what is in the Bible?
1: Very good question. I mean, God can speak to us however God wants. God is God, we're not. So, we don't get to dictate how God comes down to us, tell us things, teach us things, but we know with certainty and only certainty what God has told us in the scriptures, written in scriptures. And in a sense what what the apostles say here, this is all we need to know for life and doctrine, how to live and what we are to believe. So, this is the clearest way. But God does use the wisdom of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, the wisdom, the the things we see in nature, the things we uh, observe around us, but the clearest way is through how God has chosen to reveal himself is through the word about his son.
0: Excellent, thanks. And the next question, if we are saved by grace, does it matter fighting for society to conform to what God says to do? For example, gay marriage.
1: It's it's a good question. So, it comes down to the the ethic or the way of thinking that, I mean, marriage is a private thing between two adults who are consenting. Why do you want to change what affects others that won't in in the end affect you? But there's a flaw in that way of thinking and that's because marriage, the way God designed it between one man and one woman, is not just a Christian thing. It's actually good for all people it's in fact the basic building blocks of all society. And so, and so if Christians speak out and Christians should speak out, it's because it's not just that it affects some people but it affects society. It's, it's not for the good of society. And, and that, that's the reason for uh, why we would do that. We are saved by grace. So we are fallen Christians, everyone, we've done things wrong. We are saved by grace, that is clear. But we still want to put effort into what is good for society, what is good for all people not just Christians, and that's why.
0: Sure. Thanks, John. As I said, we didn't get time for all the questions we had, so if your question didn't get answered, uh, come and chat to John afterwards, and I'm sure he'll love to answer your question for you. Uh, We're going to sing our final song now, so I'll invite them